You're listening to a podcast from GUT. Welcome to the GUT podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, we are discussing the current Editor's Choice Manuscript entitled An Update on the Use and Investigation of Probiotics in Health and Disease. This is presented by a number of authors based both in the US and Europe and I'm delighted to welcome the senior author Dr. Emerin Mayer from the Division of Digestive Diseases, University of California, Los Angeles in the USA and he's here today for this podcast. Um, Welcome. Well, your review opens with a question. If gut bacteria are making you ill, can swapping them make you healthy? And this is taken from an article from The Economist published last year and reflects the current widespread interest in the microbiota, how dysbiosis is linked to disease not only of the GI tract but at various body sites, and the potential benefits of targeting the microbiota as a therapeutic and or in the capacity of preventative medicine to promote health. So just to start off, um, can you just remind us of the definition of a probiotic and in broad terms, their potential mechanism of action? So the current definition of probiotics is that they are life microorganisms which, when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit to the host. Their potential mechanisms of action by which they confer this this health benefit varies. There's multiple ways that um, these microorganisms can interact with the host, either through interactions with receptors or through molecules that are produced by the microorganisms that can act on receptors, on host receptors in the gut, or can even act in, in an endocrine fashion, being absorbed and then uh, you know, getting into the circulation. It's very common now as a clinician to be asked by patients about probiotics in clinic as a potential treatment for the presenting symptoms for a wide range of diagnosis. And your review very succinctly reports on the evidence to date for probiotics in a number of gastrointestinal conditions, and we'll work through these in turn. So firstly, let's consider irritable bowel syndrome. What is the evidence for probiotic use in this context, and what should we be telling our patients? Well, the evidence uh, for an effectiveness in treating IBS symptoms is is limited. It's limited to a small number of probiotics that have undergone rigorous um, testing in randomized controlled trials. There's a very large number, and we're confronted with this in in our clinics every day. Uh, There's a very large number of of probiotics available, commercially available on websites. And uh, for the great majority of these, we have no evidence to support that they will have any impact other than a placebo response in in the patient. We we don't even know if um, how many of these products have viable uh, probiotics in them. If live microorganisms are required to have a health benefit, there's some evidence that even products that have been produced when these microorganisms were live was. Um, cell wall products could confer a health benefit. So overall, it's difficult in the in the clinic to really recommend to a patient other than saying, if you're on it and it helps you, um, you should probably stay on it. For those limited number of probiotics where we have randomized controlled trial data, there are significant but small effects. The, the effects are typically on on characteristic symptoms of non-painful discomfort, bloating, distension. A typical response by a physician would be that if you have not been, so many people now have been on these compounds, 
um, a typical response would be if you haven't tried them, um, you know, here are two or three options where we have some data that they work in some in subsets of patients. And if you want to try them, you know, we'll, we'll do a course of three or four weeks. Um, I, I think that's the only scientific recommendation that we can currently give. The, what's complicated the area now is mentioned earlier that almost, you know, the great majority of patients due to advertising, uh, you know, have already tried one or more of these probiotics when they come to see the physician. Well, moving now on to inflammatory bowel disease, um, I believe there was some evidence from preclinical animal studies that probiotics may be therapeutic, but the data from the subsequent clinical human studies disappointingly didn't confirm this as a global treatment strategy. Um, tell us more about this and outline where we are now in terms of evidence for probiotic use for IBD. Starting with the with the preclinical studies, the, the very impressive data on effects of certain probiotics um, on gut permeability, on inflammatory responses, on uh, immune responses. So the, the very mechanisms that we think play a role in in the pathophysiology of, of IBD. You know, this has led to the to the expectation that they that these similar beneficial effects may have. A therapeutic effect um, in in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. The data, however, in human studies, so no consistent effects have been noted in treating or preventing relapse of Crohn's disease. For ulcerative colitis, benefit, some studies have reported benefits for giving combinations of several of several probiotics, like Lactobacillus, Bifidobacterium, and Streptococcus, and for um, E. coli nissols, or a strain of E. coli, in inducing and maintaining remission of disease activity. This has been seen in mild to moderately severe ulcerative colitis patients. There's also some evidence that uh, prevention of pouchitis um, and reducing the likelihood of relapse after a successful antibiotic treatment, um, that this may be beneficial. So some evidence in specific settings more in ulcerative colitis and in pouchitis, less or none in, in Crohn's disease. It's not, I mean, this is not surprising given that, um, the, you know, our knowledge of the, the complex interactions within the GI tract between genetic, microbial, um, food-related environmental factors uh, is incompletely understood. Um, there's almost certainly subtypes of patients Based on the contribution of these three factors to the to the clinical phenotype, so given you know if you go from genetically engineered mouse models and inbred strains of mice where we have you know nearly identical animals where we see effect sizes to heterogeneous populations with very complex interactions of multiple factors it's this is not surprising that we don't can't reproduce the same clinical benefit as would have been predicted. So you mentioned that it may be subpopulations of patients that may benefit from probiotic treatment for IBD. Um, it may be that some of the clinical trials um, haven't used this targeted approach. So how do you think we can uh, improve our understanding of this? You know, we have made tremendous progress in the understanding of some of the host factors uh, that play a role in, in IBD and the genetic factors suggesting subgroups of patients. Well, we know that inflammatory bowel disease 
you know, arises from a combination of defective mucosal barrier function, abnormal immune regulation, and defective recognition and killing of, of microbes. So identifying subtypes of patients that have particular deficiency in one of those areas and then targeting this with a particular probiotic, for example, that has more anti-inflammatory effects, like one that is an IL-10 producing microbe or one that is has a, a particular effect on, on permeability would increase this um, the uh, success rate. The reasons for these failures, you know, they've been summarized, and this really applies to not just IBD, but to, to the other gastrointestinal disorders as well. Not really completely understanding the complexity of the gut microbiome. Are we targeting the wrong targets? Are we using the wrong probiotic agents? Are we targeting the correct or incorrect disease mechanism? Is the product that we give potent enough so the concentrations that were used and demonstrated in animal studies can we achieve those in humans? Is the product delivered at a time in relation to the to the disease onset or the disease course where it can be effective? So some may be effective in re, in maintaining remission. Others may be effective in decreasing the inflammatory response, the age of the subject. So, I mean, these are just some of the, 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 the questions, I think, that have to be answered and, you know, will result in possible solution to, to get a greater success rate. Right now, even though we have been able to characterize the ecology, the composition of the microbiota in, in the gut, both in health and disease, we, we still, it's, it's still an incomplete knowledge. Are there, for example, substance of patients that have specific deficiencies in certain in certain microbiota that that we can relate directly to a mechanism, such as the permeability changes, the inflammatory changes, um, and then can we substitute that particularly deficient uh, organism with a targeted uh, probiotic? I mean, th- those I, I think we're at a very early stage of this. We we don't understand completely the pathognomonic. Um, alterations in microbiota in subsets of patients, you know, we, we, we sort of expect naively that by throwing in one type of probiotic to everybody that we would get, that we would reproduce the effects we see in, in animal models. So I would still think that the, given the fact that we, you know, have developed a, a growing understanding of mechanisms and molecules by which some of these probiotics exert their beneficial effects in IBD models. Once we identify the subsets and the deficiencies in humans, I think there's a good possibility to that this will result in in effective treatment strategies for subsets of patients. There's obviously another step in this. So there have been attempts to uh, genetically modify microbiota to make them produce, for example, IL-10 or other substances that we know have health benefits in IBD, you know, we would sort of make these pharmacobiotics basically drug delivery systems that use the microbiota phenotype as a delivery vehicle. So that's sort of a logical, but pretty much more challenging and difficult approach because throwing in a genetically engineered microbiota into a very complex and incompletely understood 
understood system is obviously has significant risk factors. Well, you suggested earlier there may be a potential role of microbial and di dietary intervention to maintain remission in IBD once mucosal healing has been achieved with conventional standard therapy. So tell us more about this approach and any data that's available for this. This is basically um, based on the concept that that food components would, or dietary strategies could selectively enhance the growth and function of endogenous bacteria or diminish the activities of detrimental bacteria. We now know from you know a, a growing number of studies that dietary interventions have a significant effect on the composition and the metabolic products of microbiota. So several well-designed studies show that agrarian diets, as opposed to Western diets, Western diets behind fat, but particularly can change the profile or the enterotype or intergradient of the, the, the microbiota. With these agrarian diets, shifting it more towards a non-inflammatory you know, profile and the Western diets really shifting it to a pro-inflammatory uh, uh, profile. So that's one general concept, you know, which may also underlie this this phenomenon that we we have been observing um, an increase, dramatic increase in the prevalence of inflammatory bowel diseases in, in countries that have switched from a more agrarian diet to a Western type diet. So reversing that that trend and evaluating the effect on the microbiota and then uh, determining if such a shift in the enterotype would decrease the, the uh, risk of IBD or decrease the disease activity in patients who already have developed it. So short-chain fatty acids, for example, one of the main um, metabolic products of bifidobacteria and, and, and other species have multiple health uh, benefits. So they're important metabolic substrates for colonic epithelial cells. They also function as um, they act on short-chain fatty acid receptors on epithelial cells um, and can have both local and more distant um, uh, effects. Giving prebiotics such as inulin or fructose oligosaccharides, which increase the number of bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, would be expected to have a health benefit in, in inflammatory bowel disease. And on the other hand, refined sugars and food additives such as iron has been shown to have potential um, effect on the proliferation of detrimental bacterial species, so including E. coli, Klebsiella, and Enterococcus faecalis. So, diet, which in the in the past, in my opinion, has been a poorly understood component of, um, and, and and not very scientifically uh, evaluated component of disease management in IBD and other um, GI disorders as well, will have to be reevaluated based on these insights now that diet is not just beneficial or detrimental based on what we absorb, but also what we don't absorb and gets into the colon and will become basically the substrate for our microbiota, which then produce substances that may either be good or bad for our digestive health. Okay, I'm just going to move the focus away from IBD just for a, a short while um, and just concentrate on some more uh, gastrointestinal pathologies for which uh, there's some evidence for probiotic use. Um, so particularly infectious diarrhea and necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, can you outline the benefits of probiotics in this context for us? 
Yeah, so, you know, starting with necrotizing enterocolitis, very high uh, mortality, the patients particularly at risk for this are preterm infants, um, which are prone to inflammation and loss of epithelial in, uh, integrity. Many of these um, preterm infants spend a lot of time in neonatal intensive care units on antibiotics, which by themselves, you know, will both the the altered um, microbial environment in these intensive care units plus the antibiotic treatment clearly have a major effect on the microbiota and the microbiome composition of these infants. So to what degree this environmental factor by itself, uh, you know, has a role in the um, pathophysiology and etiology of, of um, necrotizing enterocolitis is one important question. Uh, in terms of treatment, there's some meta-analysis of probiotic studies using various uh, strains that have shown a reduction in the frequency and reduction in overall mortality. This has not um, convinced the American Academy of Pediatrics, which um, you know, which has called for more more studies before issuing clinical recommendations. As in many of these um, disorders, so you know, we have a significant number of smaller studies which by themselves could be criticized based on their, you know, the, the quality of the, the trial design and the sample size. But in meta-analyses, we do see uh, beneficial effects. On the other hand, if you look at individual studies, I mean, there's one systematic review of, of three randomized controlled trials with a bifidobacterium species in close to 300 preterm babies. There was only a trend to prevention so again, we don't know, is it this particular probiotic? Is it that there was heterogeneity in the in the sample that was studied in these three samples? Similar issues, as I mentioned before, for IBD. We don't know if all these babies have the same deficiency. Is, is it different if, if the pathophysiological mechanisms was induced by an antibiotic as opposed to arising from another cause? So I would say this uh, indication, as in many other intestinal disorders, would follow the same the same picture that we get. Meta-analysis suggesting a beneficial effect, probably the beneficial effect being seen in a subset of these patients, um, and possibly the beneficial effect being related to a particular probiotic in one subset as opposed to another probiotic in another subset. In infectious diarrhea, it appears so there's both the acute diarrhea and the, the persistent diarrhea in the acute diarrhea. Small benefit, um, reduction of diarrhea duration by about a day. These studies have done, been done primarily in developed areas. Studies done in developing countries have been more variable. In, in persistent diarrhea in developing areas, again, approximately four-day reduction in the duration of um, persistent diarrhea, and this was coupled with an improved, with improved growth parameters. With infectious diarrhea, which is particularly a problem in developing countries, the, the health benefit potentially of such a treatment is significant because it's not only on the discomfort from the diarrhea, but it's also on the stunting of, uh, you know, growth of the organism. So, as we talked about before, um, evidence in subsets of patients different in the developing world and in the developed world, um, but in persistent diarrhea, particularly, you know, a significant four-day reduction in, in, in the duration of the diarrhea. 
Well, as we've mentioned earlier, there appears to have been an explosion in the availability of foods and supplements labelled as probiotic for everyday purchase from supermarkets and plentiful advertisements in the media. Um, is there any regulation of this? It's clearly different in Europe and the US. I, I can speak about the US. The health claims before somebody can advertise the marketing of a of a probiotic enriched food um, or prebiotic with a health claim in in the US is still pretty loose. I mean, there's you know as one can see from the advertisements on TV, many products uh, make these health claims. Um, there's up to now. Certainly not the rigorous evaluation and requirement to demonstrate effectiveness as we have for pharmacological or pharmaceutical products. It is it is very difficult to differentiate between the placebo effect if you eat something that you think is healthy, which you know may have a health benefit through the placebo response, as opposed to have a specific benefit that you get from ingesting this particular food. I think in Europe the, it's the the regulations are stricter. I think there's, as far as I remember, um, health benefits of probiotics are currently not officially recognized and cannot be used in, in, in marketing. Well, there's clearly challenges in assessing the health benefits and potential therapeutic uses of probiotics. So what do you feel are the main areas that need to be addressed in future clinical studies? Well, I mean, first of all, there's the whole issue about, you know, health benefit in healthy people, basically making people more resilient, disease prevention, as opposed to studying the effect of probiotics in disease, um, in, in actual diseases. So the minute it becomes the second category, it will fall under the, you know, regulation of the FDA. Um, it's going to be considered like a regular drug uh, with all the requirements. It's more challenging for demonstrating the health benefits. These would be large, would require large studies, uh, expensive studies, high-risk studies for many of the probiotic manufacturers. You know, because if the study comes out negative, it'd be detrimental to the to to, to the marketing of, of a particular compound. In the future, I think in terms of particular, this is true about the category of studies <clears throat> in disease areas. I think we need to better understand are there diseases that have specific deficiencies um, of certain strains of microbiota that can be that could be substituted by giving a, a particular strain of a probiotic rather than just giving everybody the same. In the future, um, you know, can we treat diseases by identifying products that have health benefits produced by microbiota? Such as IL-10 production, anti-inflammatory uh, effect. Um, can can such um, compounds be given as a, as a drug, uh, bypassing the whole live organism step? I mean, I would say this is really the, the the goal to have a more rational treatment of subsets of patients that we have characterized have abnormal um, microbiota compositions um, and abnormal production of metabolites I think is probably the major you know the major step that that, that will make this area more you know move it into a more scientific and, and, and into a more rational um, arena you know nobody in the field of drug therapy would give a particular drug without having any idea what the underlying pathophysiology is in a in an individual 
and not knowing if, if the drug really has any effects that affect a particular pathophysiology. Um, and, and this will be happening. You know, we'll, we'll, this field has to move into an area where the same criteria are applied to designing these studies, selecting the compounds, selecting the patients, realizing the existence of subsets of patients with different pathophysiologies. I, I, I think this, this is just the, the direction this field has to go. So just to finish up, um, I think the, the, the big question is whether the next generation will be engaged in probiotic use from an early age to modify their microbiota and impact on emergence of future disease. Um, so in your opinion, what do you think the future holds um, in, in this context? So, you know, probiotics are organisms that convey a health benefit to the organism. So one of the things that has been kind of the most revolutionary or potentially revolutionary development is this fecal transplantation. So you don't take a probiotic from from outside the body, but you actually take the body's own microbiota and put them from a healthy person and put them into a, a patient um, and, you know, that we think has a has a deficiency or abnormal regulation of their microbiota. And this has been strikingly um, successful um, based on anecdotal reports and small studies. Um, we clearly don't have the, the large uh, data uh, on this yet, but this clearly would point for direction in the future, you know, to understand, I mean, what are the mechanisms that convey these health benefits of transplanting a healthy microflora into a, into a host that apparently has a compromised diversity or compromised uh, ecology of their microbiota and give these dramatic health benefits, like in Clostridium difficile, you know, a life threat, potentially life-threatening disease where a fecal transplantation um, can be curative while multiple antibiotic courses are not. Um, and, you know, we have some indications this may also be beneficial for metabolic syndrome, um, we know this from animal studies that there's remarkable um, effects of transplanting the flora from one strain to another, even to the point that such a transplant could change the the emotional behavior of of, of a of, of a rat strain. So, I, I think of all the things that I've seen, in some ways this would be the safest and the most um, physiological approach rather than bioengineering new microbiota that um, do not exist in nature with all the potential um, negative effects that this could trigger, unforeseen effects. I think taking the natural flora and, uh, you know, substituting missing parts in, in a host that doesn't have the, the natural regulation is much more promising. The problems with that approach is currently that we don't know what else we're transplanting. The gut virome, which is incompletely understood, there are viruses in the microbiome that um, may have delayed effects that we don't know. We don't know if these transplants in the long term could increase the risk of somebody with Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. So on, on the one side, a very exciting, probably the most exciting um, development um, that has occurred and is now getting widespread traction with multiple academic centers um, starting 
studies. The FDA has gotten involved in the U in the U.S. because of the potential long-term negative effects. You know, an IND has to be obtained before doing these kind of treatments. But I think once we understand what is the health benefit of a fecal transplant, can these substances that or metabolites that are required or that mediate this effect, can they be isolated and given, you know, without the microbiota? Um, that could have a revolutionary effect on a whole range of diseases, you know, not just from GI diseases, but I mentioned the metabolic syndrome and this emerging concept that, you know, some even some CNS disorders may have um, inputs from abnormal microbiome uh, composition. So I would say, in, in my personal opinion, we'll see a lot of very exciting data coming out of these studies, um, and there are, there are efforts on the way to identify what are the mediators of these fecal transplants and can they be delivered in a safe, um, in a safe fashion that does not require you know, fecal transplantation. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd just like to finish by thanking Dr. Emerin Mayer for joining me today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.